We have something slightly different to bring you on the innovation show this week. This is a rip directly from a stage where I was MC for the tech stage at the 15 seconds in Graz in Austria, the day after I gave my own keynote. I have three episodes of this live stage for you. The first is with Phaedra Bonadiras. She is the author of AI for the rest of us. And she is a brilliant speaker about ethics in AI, responsible AI and women helping women in tech. I'll hand you over to Phaedra. You can find her at phaedra.ai. So I consider it learning with witnesses. That's led to the work that I do today as a facilitator, as a keynote speaker and emceeing events like this. We have got a brilliant lineup in store for you today. We're going to talk a lot about AI, trustworthiness and AI, cybercrime later on as well. We're going to talk about how to save the world from AI. We're going to talk about technology, time management, and much, much more besides. We're going to start off with something that's really important but not spoken about enough. There's a, a terminology in coding that you have garbage in, garbage out. You code garbage into technology, then that garbage stays with that technology. That very much goes to, for AI. For anybody who works in that field, you know that. And there's a lot of bias in AI because it's coded by people who have those biases. And being biased doesn't mean you're broken, doesn't mean anything's wrong. If you're human, you're biased. And we're joined today by a lady who's leading the charge for this type of awareness about trustworthiness in AI, about balance in AI, and gender balance in AI. She's leading that charge. She's with IBM, and she leads the division that works for trustworthiness in AI. So I'm delighted to welcome to the stage, Phaedra Buenaderas. Thank you so much. I think he's really part Greek, not just Irish, because he pronounced it so well. Thank you, Aiden. Uh, welcome, everybody. Good morning. I'm so pleased to be here with you today. Uh, so my job at IBM is that I help clients be more responsible curators of artificial intelligence. I can assure you right now, there is absolutely nothing easy about this job. In fact, I've taken to illustrating comics as my own form of art therapy because it's so challenging working within this space. But also, I've started to learn that I can use comics and humor as a means to teach, to be a better teacher, a better advocate for some of the, the lessons learned. Um, so, and I'll probably repeat this, I don't know, five times in this one single talk, but earning trust in something like artificial in intelligence is not a technical problem. It's not a technical problem with a technical solution. It is a socio-technical problem, which means you really, really need a holistic approach. So I'm going to start telling you about some of the stories that have really inspired me to work in this space. But a little bit of background about me. But before joining IBM, my background was actually in uh, games, video games, games for entertainment. I had been a serial entrepreneur in this space for about 14 years. I started the first scholarship program for women to pursue degrees in game design and development within the United States. I ended up joining IBM to lead our first serious games program, which is when you use video games to do something other than just entertainment, which is where I got really inspired by AI. 
this idea of intersection of artificial intelligence and play, you can do so much within this domain. Anyway, several years ago, I started to get angrier and angrier by what I was reading within the news. The idea in particular of organizations that were using artificial intelligence for blatant malintent in order to manipulate people. And so I decided to pursue a PhD program and learn as much as I possibly could within this space. So um, as I began my PhD, I began to recognize very, very quickly, first of all, that it's a socio-technical challenge, but then also even organizations that truly have the very best of intentions with respect to their use of AI can end up causing both individual as well as societal harm. So some of the stories, again, that, that influenced me, uh, first of all, you know, the state of Michigan within the United States, they procured an AI model to predict welfare fraud within their citizenry. It ran for three years with an accuracy score of less than 10%. So thousands of vulnerable families were erroneously fined, right? Another example. Um, the U.S. judicial system had procured an AI model to help predict the level of recidivism of prisoners, the likelihood of a prisoner committing another crime. And this was an AI model that was meant to help better um, augment judges in the courtroom. So uh, a leading publication pro called ProPublica did a deep dive into the training data for this particular AI model. And of course, it was trained on historically racist data. In which case, when this came out, they went and took it down. Another example, a police force within the country of Spain, they had procured an AI model also to predict the level of recidivism of domestic abusers, right? So let's say someone were, were to go to the police and say, I'm really worried about my spouse or my partner being abusive. They would put that spouse or partner's information within the system and it would spit out a score. If the score was high enough, the police would put a protective order in place. If it was low, they wouldn't do anything, right? It was only after 19 women were murdered that they did an audit on the model. And they found out, hey, there's some serious bias within this model, including the fact that uh, it turns out the bias was that if someone from a wealthy household were to make a complaint, the score would be lower because somehow domestic abuse doesn't happen in wealthy households, right? But you have to go even further to ask yourself, like, was this actually the right use case for artificial intelligence? Who is in the room when deciding to use an AI model for something like this? Any victims of domestic abuse, right? So uh, another one, again, an organization who had the best of intentions, they procured or actually developed an AI model to help them with the level of diversity and inclusivity in their recruiting processes, okay? And the way that this worked was they wanted the AI model to be blind to things like gender and race and ethnicity, okay? So they trained the model to recognize what they called star performer traits. So in this company, those senior executives who were really spectacular and amazing, to, to train the AI model to recognize traits that were similar to those employees. Well, it just so happened within this company that those star performers were predominantly white, male, from Ivy League schools. 
So socioeconomically elite backgrounds, let's say. And um, it just so happens if your CV or your application happened to say that you were a Girl Scout troop leader because there weren't star performers who had such a trait, it would automatically rank your resume or your CV lower. So in essence, the bias was baked into the rest of the data. You with me? These are the kinds of things, again, best of intentions, but again, without understanding the real nature of artificial intelligence, these all ended up causing both individual as well as societal, societal harm. The Future of Privacy Forum, and I know this is super small, but the Future of Privacy Forum has done a great job categorizing different forms of harm, like loss of opportunity, economic loss, social detriment, loss of liberty. And now with generative AI, we're seeing even more different kinds of categories of potential harm, including people saying that it's polluting the internet, okay? Whenever we talk about artificial intelligence, it's incredibly important that we talk about power. Power, right? Mary Parker Follett, back in the early 20s, did a fantastic job talking about categories of power. And when we talk about artificial intelligence, we have to ask ourselves, does this offer power over people, power with people, or power to people? The Maori actually went so far as to publish their point of view on data sovereignty. So I want to read this out loud so you, so you can understand. Digital colonialism is the new deployment of quasi-imperial power over a vast number of people without their explicit consent, manifested in rules, designs, languages, cultures, and belief systems by a vastly dominant power. When we took the time to ask ourselves this fundamental question, which is what I would recommend of you within your organizations, what is the relationship we ultimately want to have with artificial intelligence? We came up with these three fundamental principles. Now, these seem really simple, but I promise you they are not. The first one is what is the purpose of AI? It is not meant to displace people. It is not meant to have control over people. It is meant to augment human intelligence, but we as practitioners have to go further to ask ourselves the question, what is the experience like of a human once they've been augmented by AI? The, the second statement that you see here is a statement about consent, right? About data, data and insights associated with those data belong to their creator. And the third one is about our AI systems having to be transparent and explainable, and more on that in a minute. When you come up with your own principles, make sure that they align directly to the culture of your organization because ultimately, making sure that practitioners know how to behave or how to think about things like data and AI is absolutely critical. This is a timeline that talks about IBM's journey and I just want to point out a couple of different things. So we've been developing AI tools to help practitioners develop AI responsibly since about 2013, doing things like mining data sets for bias. 2015, we hired our first AI ethics leader. And in 2018, after a very important research study came out called Gender Shades, we published those principles that I just showed you and stood up our first AI ethics board. And I want you to notice the things that come after 2018 that we've learned as an organization we had to invest in, 
right? Including things like applied training for our practitioners, holistic training to understand things like disparate impact, standing up our first AI design guild. So again, we have practitioners thinking about what is the experience like of a person once they've been augmented? Does it actually empower people? About 80% of investments in AI get stalled in proof of concept. It never actually sees the light of day. And this is typically because of a couple of different issues. One is that the investments in AI aren't actually directly tied to business strategy. And the second is that people just don't trust the results of the model. So what does it take to earn people's trust? We came up with these five different pillars. And again, these words sound really simple. I promise you they are not. The first one, fairness. What I think is fair may not be what Aiden thinks is fair or what you think is fair because there's actually many different worldviews on fairness. So when you, you, you and your organizations are coming up with your principles, you also need to think about what is your organization's worldview on fairness so that they get exemplified within your AI models. You with me? Right? There's equality, there's equity, there's meritocracy, there's many different versions of fairness. The second pillar is explainability. As you have an AI model that's making a determination that could affect your life or livelihood or other people's lives or livelihoods, what data or what expertise was being used in order to make that decision? Is that output even interpretable by people? The third one is robustness, right? Is it tamper-proof? The fourth is transparency. Is there somewhere I can go to find out who's accountable for this model? How much better does this AI model perform compared to a human? When was the last time this was audited? What was it audited for, right? Is this interpretable? Can I understand this, this output? Is it easy to find? Am I even being told that an AI model is being used? And of course, the last one, does it protect data privacy? Systems of inequity do perpetrate into our technologies. And anytime you talk about something that's socio-technical, a socio-technical challenge, you've got to talk about people, process, tools. And guess which one of these three is the hardest? You tell me, guess. People. It's people, by far. People. What is the right culture required to curate AI responsibly? So I'm going to talk a lot about culture in the last few minutes that I've got. I'll start with this definition of the word data. Data is an artifact of the human experience. We humans, we make the data, the machines that create the data. And guess what? We have 188 biases and counting. And there's actually profoundly good reasons why we have biases. Artificial intelligence can be an incredible mirror to us, offering a reflection back on our own biases. The key, since all of our data is biased, and thus our AI models are biased, is to be transparent about our biases. Here's why. Here's the data we used. Here's the expertise behind it. If that AI, that reflection, gives you insights about biases that do not align to your organization's values, that's when you know you have to be brave enough to change. Because prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. Back to the Maori. To the Maori, data is sacred. Data is absolutely sacred. In fact, the Maori, Maori lab came up with an AI model trained in the Maori language where they 
directly aligned the development of their AI model to the values of their people, right? Including things like making sure you offer attribution. This story, these sets of words came from this elder, right? A common myth is that 100% of the effort to develop AI is coding. This is incorrect. <laughs> Over 70% of the effort to develop AI models is actually making sure you're picking the right data. So we have to have people trained to ask very hard questions about data, like, where did this come from? Is this representative? Was this gathered with consent? Is this even the right data to use for this particular use case of artificial intelligence? We use design thinking heavily at IBM with our customers and amongst ourselves as practitioners to think through disparate impact. What are unintended effects of AI models? And then given an unintended, potentially harmful effect, what are the values of the organization? What are the rights of end users, whether they're employees or subjects? And then given those rights and given that potential harm, how do you design in order to mitigate risk? When I'm asked, what is the right kind of culture, organizational culture required to curate AI responsibly, there are three major things that I want you to remember. One is that you have to approach the space with humility. Right? Because as much as there is to learn, there's so much more we actually have to unlearn. Right? That's number one. So open growth mindset, humility. Number two is big emphasis on diversity inclusivity. Because today there's a very small, homogeneous group of humans developing AI, and it is their worldview which is being calcified in our AI models. So we desperately need teams made up of diverse and inclusive people developing AI. And I don't mean just gender and race and ethnicity. I'm talking about different lived world experiences, okay? And then uh, let me show you this. So, this actually came from a, a, a research study that we publicly uh, published. I want you to see some of these statistics, right? Look at who's working in tech enterprises today and who's actually working in artificial intelligence, right? Women, 33% in tech, only 6% in AI. Black indigenous people of color, 10% in tech, only 6% in AI. LGBTQ+, 4% working in tech, 1% working in AI. Now, I mentioned there were three. This is the third. And th this may possibly be the hardest, is that the teams developing AI have to be multidisciplinary, right? And I developed this comic. Again, all my comics are developed out of sheer frustration. I told you it's my own form of art therapy, right? So I developed this one, right? Welcome to the AI Ethics Summit, where we believe AI ethics is a multidisciplinary effort. You designers, psychologists, lawyers, diversity advocates, all these social scientists leave the room because we need those seats. I wrote this because more often when you go to an AI summit or you open a white paper on the subject of artificial intelligence, they're not being communicated or marketed the language that is being used isn't targeting social scientists like the ones described here. You with me? And yet we say it's multidisciplinary, right? So it's incredibly important that, again, we as practitioners are open with our, our practice. This is a snippet 
from a risk assessment form that was publicly published by another big tech company. And I had a conversation with their chief responsible AI officer about this form. And I was thanking her. I'm like, oh, thank you so much for, for putting this online. And she said, you know what the hardest part is about these risk assessment forms? She said, AI model owners have no idea how to talk about disparate impact. They don't know how to talk about vulnerable communities. They haven't been taught, right? Which, again, I did this one on the plane, so it's not as pretty as my other ones, but out of sheer frustration, I blame education, right? You don't need to take humanities courses, Bob. You're getting an AIML degree, says the university. Chinking of champagne glasses. Congratulations, you deployed the AI model to help our clients determine interest rates on home loans in record time. And the cover of the New York Times says, AI models systematize redlining in disadvantaged communities, and Bob doesn't know what redlining is. He hasn't been taught, right? What are systemic inequities? What's happening today? He doesn't know. He is unaware. So some of the things we're doing at IBM Again, focusing specifically on diverse and inclusive teams, multidisciplinary aspects of these teams, is we created a trustworthy AI center of excellence. This is a community where we said, we don't care what your background is. We don't care if you're interested in the subject of AI ethics, you are invited here. And we start working on really, really cool projects so people can have epiphanies about why it's valuable to have skills different from your own working together on a team, including like, you know, a project, what does the Titanic teach us about explainable AI? Imagine if you had an AI model that was offering predictions to passengers in the Titanic as to the likelihood of them getting a life raft, right? How do you even approach such a thing? How do you empower a passenger on the Titanic? What kind of information do you reveal and when? How are you explicit about your bias, right? Uh, so I often get asked, look, I believe in what you're saying, but I don't feel like I have any power. I am merely, I don't know, a secretary or project manager or a data scientist within my company. I don't feel like I have power to steer the ship. What can I do? What you can do is help me advocate for a more accessible and inclusive conversation about this topic. Isn't it crazy today that if you're lucky enough to be able to take a class in something like data or AI ethics, you self-categorize as a computer scientist, a machine learning scientist, or a data scientist in a higher ed institution, and not everybody else, certainly not our next generation of legislators, why aren't we teaching artificial intelligence today in social studies classes where it ultimately belongs? Like, let's teach it in high school. Let's even teach it in middle school. I was just telling my friend Nadine in the audience who I met last night, I was telling her, like, I presented this, right, this whole subject with all the design thinking exercises to about 400 Girl Scout troops about two weeks ago, along with their parents. Like, they get it. They understand power. So... I'm, I do a lot of volunteer work in K through 12, and I was invited to go and present at a, uh, a children's museum, a kids' code event in essence. And I thought to myself, okay, okay, how young can I go to teach this subject? Like, how can I use pop culture as a means to, to really give people an understanding, young people an understanding of the space? So together with a local high school, we developed an AI-powered Harry Potter sorting hat. So you guys remember 
You remember Harry Potter, right? So in the book, you put the hat on your head and it uses magic to sort of mine your brain and figure out which Hogwarts house you're in. And then it says it, right? Like Ravenclaw. So with this one, we had a hat just like this one. It was awesome. It had a hidden microphone in it, connected to a laptop, running a simple natural language processor with an algorithm that would categorize a child into a Hogwarts house based on what they said, right? And then the kids we were working with, they used Lego Mindstorm to actually get the lips on the hat to move and the sound came through from the movie. It was really awesome. What I didn't tell anybody is that I rigged the hat such that any of, of, if any of my children, and I have four, if any of my kids were to put the hat on their head and say something I guess they would say, it would put them in a Slytherin, which I knew would piss them off. Not that there's anything wrong with Slytherin, mind you, right? So it works great. I'm up on stage and my daughter, she was 14 at the time, you know, she gets up, she puts the hat on her head and she says something I guess she would say, and the hat says, Slytherin. She crosses her arms and she glares at me and she says, Mom! You rigged the hat. And I said, let this be a lesson to you. Never trust an AI that's not fully transparent and explainable. You should be able to ask the hat, what data did you use about me to put me in a Slytherin? Which actually ended up inspiring this comic. Right here she is saying, wait, why was I put in a Slytherin? And there's all this gorpy math splaining coming out about how the algorithm works. And she's still like, huh? Again, as a reminder to practitioners not to math splain. Anyway, I hope this has been helpful. Just a few other, other comments. If you're interested in introducing this to kids, there's some fantastic resources out there. There are games out there that introduce children to algorithmic bias. We're working with a nonprofit called MindSpark that actually teaches this subject to kindergarten through 12th grade teachers. Again, irrespective of their course, whether it's computer science or biology or social studies or whatnot. And about a year ago, I started a nonprofit called Future World Alliance with a dear friend of mine at Microsoft. We're all, we're all actually in the same PhD program focused on AI ethics, and now I'm going to the same school as, as Aiden. Uh, so we're curating uh, coursework, things like games and songs and graphic novels and comics to introduce the subject to kids. But I'll have you consider as you, you go back to your jobs, when you see a job opening for a position in artificial intelligence, I beg you to remember what I told you here today. What are the kinds of skills that you're asking for in that role? Because I can't get schools to move to incorporate these, this kind of teaching in something like a social studies class if there aren't more opportunities saying, hey, it's really important that our practitioners understand things like disparate impact or how to design an AI model to empower people. I came out with a book, if you want to learn more about this subject, called AI for the Rest of Us. It's newly in print as of last week. And there's all these descriptions about uh, our design thinking and how to build the AI-powered Harry Potter sorting hat. All of that info is in there as well. For those who don't know, it's Phaedra was a Cretan princess in the Greek myths, and it means brightness. Oh. And I want to say thank you for <laughs> putting some brightness and light onto this subject. So, oh, so important. I appreciate that. I was going to mention the book as well, AI for the Rest of Us. Question, Greg, right at the front here. Anybody else have a question? Because we only have a couple of minutes. And, and Phaedra, are you around if somebody I'm wants totally to grab you? I'm totally around. Okay. And reach out to me on LinkedIn yeah. if, you have, if you want to talk to me in private. Okay. So I think it's pretty well established that we need transparency and auditability and explainability. But are there any emerging models for remedy and liability? 
Yes, uh, with respect to, to remedy, I would say there's a more and more interest in asking for things like making sure that the AI models better represent the communities that they serve. There's, I'm seeing more and more of an, an emphasis on this, which again goes back to power. Does it give power to those communities? With respect to liability, there's also, of course, a movement with respect to legislation. And we're seeing pockets of legislation. Like, for example, there was a big announcement with respect to the new EU AI Act, uh, which is just now rolling out here within the European Union. Uh, but then also, there are other pockets that are focused on specific aspects of artificial intelligence. Like, for example, in New York City, there's a set of regulations that... Um, they focus specifically on AI models and automation dedicated to HR systems. Like if you're using it for either recruiting or determining pay or who gets a promotion or whatnot, there's a whole set of rules that New York City holds corporations accountable to. Uh, but really, like, I I'm not seeing as yet a world movement or worldwide set of standards, if that's what you're asking for within this space. Uh, again, I'm, I'm pushing not only for people to have a better understanding of, of compliance and regulation, but also just a better understanding about like what is the nature of this space and why we need more different kinds of, of people developing AI. There was one thing I wanted to say to you, because yeah. I've got, we've got two minutes, is um, privilege is invisible. So when somebody is privileged and they have a privilege in their life, I, I don't know if any of you saw the Netflix documentary about Woodstock 99, it's called Trainwreck because it was an absolute disaster. And the organizers had no understanding of the bands that they had recruited and it was an absolute mess, it was a train wreck. But it was because of their position of privilege that they couldn't see what was unfolding underneath them. And privilege is closely linked to power. And that's one of the huge problems in there, is the coding is done by people of privilege who have no, no understanding of the struggles other people go through. That's exactly right. And, and it's why I'm advocating for things like social studies. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is, what, is, what is inequity today? And it's, it's unfortunate, uh, at least within the United States, that there's a real divide with respect to teaching the subject of inequity, which is absolutely awful. Because again, if we don't have a better understanding about the communities and the wide variety of different communities in which AI must serve, then we're not going to be able to really develop AI in, a su in such a way that that is equitable and that truly augments people's intelligence. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, right on time. I get a little shock with these headphones if I go over time, <laughs> just so people know. Uh, That's so I'm funny. gonna take the clicker off you here as well. Thank you so much. Here's the Bearer clicker. Bearer of the light, Phaedra, the Cretan princess. Thank you very much. That. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Cheers. Don't forget her, her book, AI for the Rest of Us, is just available now on all platforms, Amazon, etc.